0: Welcome to the Wednesday Night Bible Study with Don Williams. This podcast is in honor of Don's legacy and teaching. He lived what he preached. Enjoy. Let me read 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3 to were diving right in the middle tonight of this letter. Paul and Timothy will say... Again, some introductory things about the work here last week. I just want to remind you of some things in case you join us tonight for the first time in terms of the setting of the letter and the purpose of the writing. But, uh, we'll read the chapter three right now. Here's a trustworthy saying If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, uh, King James Version Bishop, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband above one wife, tempered, self controlled respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not make <clears throat> your recent conqueror, <clears throat> or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way their are and the United States a little footnote, which says, uh, or deaconesses, but the, the Greek literally is their wives. In the same way, their wives are women worthy of respect, not malicious conquerors, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all the question, the mystery of godliness is great. He, and of course this refers to our Lord Jesus Christ, he appeared in the body, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. And God bless to us this truth from his word tonight. And Father, we do pray now. You'll teach us by your Holy Spirit. I pray that uh, this passage will come alive to us and bless us tonight. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you'll build us up as your church and glorify yourself here in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Uh, two weeks ago, I was kidding a little bit, saying, uh, "You know how excited I knew everybody was to be coming tonight to study about elders and deacons or bishops and deacons," and. Uh, and I, was, I was kidding because um, you know if you were just going to say, well, I'd I, I like to read and read something that would really bless my heart seriously. Uh, there's a chance that at least the first you know two thirds of this chapter isn't what you turn to. Uh, it's kind of like a you know manual church discipline, uh, you know how to organize the church and order the church and qualifications, of kind of like a personnel guide or or something like that. And so again, this isn't uh, you know the most exciting passage. But I pray tonight that, you know, that God's going to bless us through it. And as John Calvin said, everything in the Word of God has been given to us for our edification. So I believe God wants to build us up through this passage tonight. And, uh, and I hope there's something for each one of us, and not just kind of an abstract thing. well, yeah, that applies to, you know, priests or bishops or pastors or deacons or, you know, somebody, someplace else. And, and how would this apply to me? Well, one of the ways it might apply to you, who knows? What well, God might have for you in terms of leadership in this church. And uh, so... You know, uh, this might be something to pray over. And, uh, and also within the body of Christ, we need to take responsibility for each other in terms of the kind of exhortation that Paul sets here. And leadership isn't to be, you know, you might say, you know, these really super spiritual Christians up here who are unrelated to the church. As a matter of fact, Paul's quite concerned that the leadership of the church be, uh, you know, in certain ministry at the very heart of the life of the church. And certainly uh, the church will reflect its leadership. And so uh, you know, whoever God puts into positions of authority in our lives is going to impact our lives as well. So these qualifications do have something to say to us. Let me, uh, let me take a step backward, then, from, from that. And just to, again, frame this letter just for a few, a few moments for you. Uh, what clearly lies behind Paul's writing, 1 Timothy, is not to send out just a, a manual of church instruction. What lies behind this is uh, false teaching and false teachers who have, arisen within the church for corrupting the faith, leading people astray, uh, bringing a a potential division and damage into the life of the church of Ephesus. And so again, in chapter one, Paul leaves Timothy and says, stay in Ephesus and then uh, be my delegate or be my representative to carry out the uh, discipline and instruction and correction in the church. And having left Timothy there to carry on this ministry and to really combat the false teaching of the false teachers, Paul then writes this letter, clearly addressing Timothy, as he says in the opening, my true son in faith. But through Timothy, he's clearly addressing the whole church. Uh, and so uh, Paul lays out, you, you might say, the standards and the instruction and the direction for the church. And one of the reasons probably commentators have suggested is why Paul doesn't simply write to the Church of Ephesus is because the leadership is divided. And, uh, and, and as uh, Paul prophesied in Acts chapter 20, when he uh, bid farewell to the Ephesian elders, he says, from among your, yourselves there will rise up uh, these false teachers. And so this, this prophetic word that Paul gives in Acts 20 has come to pass. And false teaching has arisen within the church itself. And so, if the church is divided, Paul can't write to a, a unified leadership in the church. And so, he writes to Timothy and through Timothy to the church. Now, let me just remind you again in chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul speaks of false doctrine. He warns about those who engage in myths and uh, endless genealogies. Uh, so, uh, one of the problems in this false teaching is speculation and mysticism, speculative thinking, kind of spiritual speculation. And, and a kind of mystical <clears throat> uh, spirituality tagged onto that or involved with that. Uh, there's a Jewish context to it because again, in seven Paul speaks about those who misuse the law, and then he goes on and says what the proper use of the law is. So there's a legalism as well as a speculation and a mysticism uh, going on among those, uh, those uh, uh, the, the teaching that is, that is corrupting the church. Uh, well, the teaching comes from teachers, obviously, So, uh, again, in verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul warns about Hymenaeus and Alexander. Uh, He calls them out by name, and they may well be uh, elders or bishops of of, uh, home churches. And we'll say a little bit more more about that in terms of how the church developed. Uh, So there, there may be elders or bishops who are in leadership here in the church. In chapter 5 at verse 19, and let's take a look at that. Uh, Paul says, <clears throat> do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. And of course, that's based on the Old Testament that you have to have two or three witnesses who agree Two, two witnesses who must agree. He says he goes on and then says in the next verse, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. Once again, uh, here uh, we see Paul speaks directly of elders. And I'll say a word about uh, the the equation between overseer or bishop and elder between chapter 3 and and chapter 5. But but, uh, Paul warns about elders. uh, accusations are being brought against them they may be, be coming from the side of the church that's faithful to the gospel but they all may, also may be coming from the side of those who are deserting the gospel and being corrupted by these false teachers uh, so but paul says any accusation has got to be documented by two or three witnesses and uh, and then again if an elder is found in sin they are to be publicly rebuked so so what this you know, is suggesting, again, is this corruption of the leadership. And, and so Paul gives direction in terms of how to deal with those who've fallen into sin and also the grounds on which to receive accusations or complaints against leadership as well. Paul's very careful here so that, see, clearly from the whole letter, what Paul wants to do is heal and restore the church. And, and that's, that's not always easy. And the history of the church certainly proves that. If it proves nothing else, it's not always easy. And so Paul is really trying to deal pastorally and carefully, but also authoritatively, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to uh, you know, deal with what's going on. Now, uh, when we went through chapter 2, we talked about uh, the context of chapter 2 where Paul gives instruction to men and women uh, that the context is worship. And so Paul is correcting uh, the worship and some of the false teaching that lies behind the directions that that worship have been taking within the church in chapter 2. So he deals with, in a sense, the roles of men and women but it's within the context of worship, of prayer, of intercession. So there's abuses in worship. And then uh, what I'm going to say tonight is that then there also are abuses in leadership in chapter 3. And that's why Paul talks about uh, bishops or overseers and, uh, and deacons in chapter 3. And it's not just that he you know, suddenly is coming up again with kind of a uh, you know, personnel policy <laughs> for the church, but Paul is writing this in the context of the abuse of, of, of leadership and its corruption. And so, uh, so this is not only directive, it's also corrective. You, if you kind of read between the lines just a little teeny bit, you can, you can sense that as Paul is uh, painting this picture of both the qualifications and the responsibilities for church leadership. Okay, so we're going to talk tonight about, <clears throat> and again, elders or bishops, overseers and deacons and these two positions of responsibility within the church. And we'll say a, a, a word about the women that are mentioned here in verse 11. They're in the same way their wives. And again, uh, that's the literal Greek translation. But it, Paul may well intend here deaconesses, namely women who are serving in, in, a, in a capacity, ministry capacity as deaconesses as well as deacons. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why it can be taken that way, and then you can decide how you want to take it. Okay. <laughs> Um, when we get there. But let me frame this now. I want to step back from this whole issue of of bishops or elders and deacons, and I want to frame this uh, in, in a wider context. Jesus Christ came into this world as the incarnate Son of God. He, of course, was baptized by John in the River Jordan. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Father affirmed him, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, Jesus then was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was uh, uh, tempted by the devil there. He defeated those temptations and then entered into his public ministry. And the question is, well, what, how would you summarize Jesus' ministry if you're going to just summarize it? And of course, there'd be different ways that we could do that. But let me, uh, let me suggest one of those ways, and that is he proclaimed the word of God and met human need. Uh, And that meeting human need, of course, was in healing, uh, signs and wonders, but also in very, you know, wonderful physical ways and very, you know, in a sense, undramatic, non-spectacular ways as well as in in, in very wonderful, miraculous ways. Um, But you know, a a kind of a a non-miraculous way, you might think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet on, you know, as they celebrated the Passover, I mean, a simple act of humility but again, how would you summarize Jesus' ministry? He brought, he, he is the, the eternal word of God. Uh, he, uh, he is incarnate as the, uh, um, as, as the son of God in our, in our history, in our flesh, in our humanity. And what did he do? He brought the final revelation of God. He proclaimed the word of God and did the work of God. And the work of God is simply meeting human need. I mean, the deepest need that we have is for salvation. Christ accomplished that on the cross. But the salvation again in the Bible is a very broad concept It's not only to be saved from my sins and going to hell so that one day. I'll go to heaven But it's it's uh, it's really you know what the word salvation in Hebrew means basically it means spaciousness (laughs) To be saved is to have room (laughs) in other words all the things that press in upon us sin destruction death the devil anxiety fear hopelessness, bondages, and what have you see they're lifted from us. And to be saved from our enemies is to, you know, be able to just, it's kind of like Maria Von Trapp dancing out in the, you know, uh, in the, uh, you know, in the, in, when the sound of music opens, you know, I, I go to the hills, you know, blah, 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 and she's dancing around out there everybody's staring blankly at me anyway well this is an old film but for, for those of us oldies you know who like old safe films the sound of music i think one best picture but it was you know before some of you were born but anyway um not quite but anyway uh you know here she is out there just you know and, and they've got these great camera shots you know from a helicopter or what have you, on her she's dancing around Singing, you know, in this, and you just, and again, again, the setting is in the Alps, and it's in the spring, and all this green grass and flowers. I mean, he's just spectacularly beautiful. You just have this sense of complete freedom and release and spaciousness. Well, that's that's the, the really the root meaning of the word salvation. <clears throat> so Jesus came to save us, you know, in the full sense of that, to to restore this fallen creation, to overturn the powers of darkness, to defeat the devil, to restore us into the spaciousness of of innocence, if you will. You know, that God's original intention for us in creation. And uh, uh, <clears throat> so he brought the final revelation of God, he did the Word of God, he, he or spoke the Word of God, uh, and, and he did the work of God in serving us. Now, the reason why I'm saying that to you is because this frames, then, the ministry of the church. If this was Jesus' public ministry, bringing God's word and serving human need, then this, of course, became the ministry of of the body of Christ, the church, as it unfolded. And in fact, it's exactly what we see in the New Testament. Um, The disciples are discipled into that ministry, and then from the day of Pentecost on, the church engages in that ministry. Let me give you one example. Turn to 1 Peter, Peter's letter in chapter four, at verse 10. Listen to what Peter says. He says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Look at how Peter sums up the ministry of the church. You know, he says all right we've been gifted by god's grace we've all received uh, the, the gift of the holy spirit and the spiritual gifts that the spirit brings and now uh, now how shall we serve then and in verse 11 speaking the word and uh, and then again in verse 11 serving so again it, the ministry of, of the word and of service serving human need and proclaiming the, the revelation of God, the written word of God, the, uh, the, the living word of God, and what have you. So the church as the body of Christ continues Jesus' ministry in the world. Now in Acts chapter 6, and we can just glance at this for a moment, uh, the apostles who are bearing this double ministry of our Lord, if you will, the word and, 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 uh, and, and serving human need, they become so overwhelmed by the early growth of the church that they have to make some administrative decisions. Look at Acts chapter 6 at verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews, the Hellenists among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And by the way, the word deacon or servant, there are two words in Greek for the word servant. One means a bond slave, one who has been... uh, 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 impressed into slavery, but, the, but that's the stronger word. When Paul says, Paul, a servant of, of Christ Jesus, he uses that word bondslave. But the other word, which is, uh, which is the word from which we get the English word deacon, diakonia, is, uh, or uh, diakonos is, is, is the word deacon, um, it means table waiter. So the office of deacon in the church is the office of table waiter. That's the meaning in classical Greek. But here here we have it, waiting on tables. Okay, so, so they say, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there's a division of labor here that takes place. The apostles continue to proclaim the gospel and evangelize, and they, of course, have a unique authority given to them by our Lord Jesus Christ to maintain uh, the truth of the gospel, the purity of his teaching and what have you. So they exercise that and they continue to evangelize and uh, to prayer in the ministry of the word. That's going to be their central focus. And then the seven are gathered to take care of the physical needs of the early church. And they then become the deacons, so to speak. So, again, Jesus' ministry uh, embodied in the whole ministry of the church uh, for all of us, but then there are those who are specifically set apart to carry out these functions here in Acts chapter 6 so What I'm suggesting to you is that the elders or the overseers or bishops and the deacons are you might say the kind of the organizational organizational response of the church to the whole of Jesus ministry doesn't mean that they're the only ones who minister the word and serve, not at all. But they carry a responsibility on behalf of the whole church uh, to, you might say, to implement the ministry that Jesus has given to the whole church. And that doesn't mean that, so, that those who, who speak the word never serve, and those who serve never speak the word. Matter of fact, Stephen, one of the early servers, goes out and preaches one of the longest sermons in the Bible and is immediately martyred. So, um, so. I mean, it'd be stupid to say, "Well, you know, I'm sorry, I, I can't clean up uh, tonight. Uh, I don't uh, stack chairs, or I don't, you know, because I'm I'm the pastor and I've been called to just teach the word." You know, uh, I mean, that'd be stupid, and you know, but so so. But there's a division of labor, and the division of labor is based <clears throat> partly on you might say just necessity, as in Acts chapter six. You know, ministry became overwhelming. You've got to kind of delegate it and release it and parcel it out. So that's that's you know one of the things. But the other thing is there's also clearly gifting, special gifting that the Holy Spirit gives. And so some are gifted as apostles and prophets and and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, and in First Corinthians chapter twelve, there's another gift list. Um, and, uh, and and so uh, part you see part of our responsibility then is to say Lord. We can ask him for gifts. Lord, we've, we we and I've, I've been praying I've, as I've been studying this. I mean, Lord, we need more pastors in our church. We need more who are really gifted in the word of God to teach and to care for people, you know, but we really need more deacons too. We need more people who are really have a heart for service in our church. And, and I just been praying about these very things because, because what the Bible teaches is that these are gifts that the risen Lord gives to his church. And again, Ephesians chapter four is the great passage on this. Now, let me say this. Gift precedes office. In other words, before anybody moves in an official role, like I'm say I'm in the office of pastor here tonight, okay? Uh, which means that this church will always have a pastor. If I were to dro- drop dead of a heart attack right now, crumple to the full floor, um, that we would, you know, pray and and, and go through a process. And it might well be Jay, that God would then elevate Jay, the associate pastor of the church, to be the pastor of the church. Or God might bring someone else. I mean, I don't know because I wouldn't be here. So that <laughs> wouldn't be my, I wouldn't be to worry about it. But uh, but, you know, there'd be in, in other words, this is a, a role or a function or an office or a responsibility that God's ordained in the church. And I, you know, I'm s- step into that role at this point. Right. OK. Um, but. Gift precedes office. The office doesn't create the gift. Have you ever tried to recruit somebody hoping they're going to catch on? Or that they'll get excited about something? Listen, I I used to do that. I've really tried to give that up. You know, I'm not in, I'm not 100 percent on this, but so many times in the church will think, gosh, you know, so and so is getting pretty marginal. They're kind of slipping away. Let's give them a job, you know, and and then now now that may work in the sense that they feel valuable, and important and needed. And, and maybe that's why they're slipping away. But many times we hope like they'll grow into this. Well, I think there is a growth. I mean, I mean, if I, I wish I had old tapes of Jay's preaching three or four years ago in Sorrento Valley. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, if any of you hear Jay preach now, I mean, I know some of you do, or all of us do it one time or another, he preached, did you hear his Super Bowl sermon uh, uh, Sunday morning? Anyway, um, I mean, the, his growth in the office, in a sense, has been wonderful, wonderful, and, and it's, I mean, there's an anointing of God on him and a blessing and, and a maturing that's going on, and, 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 I, and hopefully that's happening to me, you know, even at my age, you know. I take comfort. I've quoted this before, John Wimber. I hope I, I. hope I grow up before I grow old. Anyway, um, <clears throat> but again, I got to say this: the gifting, the calling of God, and the gifting of God precedes the office. So you don't put somebody into a, into a a position of leadership or responsibility, hoping that God may then call them later to it. <laughs> You know or hoping the lord's gonna show up sometime and bless us through this person in the meantime we're just gonna have to you know grin and bear it you know so uh <clears throat> so uh gifts are given and, and they're to be received in other words the risen christ again in ephesians 4 you can read that early part of ephesians 4 through for this point are given but the other side this is a tension okay that we have to live in the other side of this is that gifts are also to be sought Prayed for, asked for, in a sense, prayed into being. Look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter fourteen at verse one. Uh, you know, many of you are familiar with this passage. Paul says, "Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy." So we, it's it's appropriate to desire God's gifts. It's a, it's appropriate to pray for them, and. Uh, and, and I, one, one of the functional things that I think is true is that as we as, as newer Christians or you know, as we enter into uh, life in Christ and we become a part of the body of Christ and what have you, God will begin to, to gift us. And, and uh, we'll begin to get, have a kind of track record of ministry that will begin to emerge and, and uh, what may be in a sense occasional gifting may become more thematic in our lives. And that will be one indication of direction that God is giving for ministry for us. Uh, when I was in high school, after I was converted, I, um, <clears throat> one of the things, my mother was a, a, an English teacher, a high school English teacher, um, and uh, and she taught drama and stuff like that. So she loved public speaking. And so she always pushed me in that direction uh, when I was growing up. And so I took, you know, drama and things like that, tried out for endless plays, never made it because I looked so young. I looked like I, when I was in high school, I looked like I was about 12. I was real skinny and blonde. and. And I, you know, they'd have these adult roles, and and I finally got one role as a servant in *The Taming of the Shrew*. Shakespeare's *Taming of the Shrew*. I had 20 words. I mean, some people count lines. I count words. I had 20 words. I cannot s- said my 20 words. That's the only. I mean, after and I try, but it, but I did do a lot of like, debate and public speaking and stuff like that. I was a- able to do the public speaking more than than the, than the drama, but. Uh, so I, I kind of had a natural inclination and, and a lot of kind of nurturing from my mom, especially in, in that direction. But after I became a Christian, and partly because of that encouragement from my mother and stuff, you know, it was natural for me to periodically, you know, you know, step into some leadership position with kids or our youth group or whatever in our church. And I'd start giving my testimony. And I remember I, uh, they had this, <clears throat> back then, this is in the 50s. <laughs> Anyway, there, there was a national, really international organization uh, in, in the Protestant Church called Christian Endeavor, and uh, nobody, nobody here, I'm sure, knows about that. But, but it was there were millions of kids involved in Christian Endeavor, and it kind of faded away. It was kind of like the YMCA, but the YMCA got so secularized that it stuck around. <laughs> but Christian Endeavor, which was another great kind of evangelical movement amongst young people, what have you, it, it didn't get secularized, so it just kind of faded away. But uh, anyway. Uh, they had this debate contest, and and so I, you know, uh, no, no, pardon me. It wasn't it was it wasn't a debate contest at all. It was a, a you know that's kind of like giving a little sermon, you know, like a speech thing. And uh, anyway, so I, I uh, you know tried out for it, what have you went, you know went went through various, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of up the ladder of, of the competition. Ended up speaking at the Church of the Open Door in downtown Los Angeles. That church now is, yeah, it, it has been torn down. But it was one of the big churches in downtown Los Angeles years ago and I remember being on the platform and all these pastors were behind me. I was this little high school kid and there were probably a thousand people out in front and getting up and giving my little talk. Well I won the state championship. Matter of fact I'll bring you the little truck, no I won't, <laughs> the little cup at my mom's house somewhere <laughs> buried away in the debris of my life. But, uh, <clears throat> but The the reason why I'm telling you this is because, you know, there were just little events in my life and God was just blessing me, you know, just little steps, teeny steps, baby steps, you know. But, you know, and and then people would say, well, gee, we really enjoyed that, or I, you know, got a lot out of that, or what have you, or or occasionally somebody would become a Christian, or, you know, and so that began to multiply, and at at that time I knew nothing, really, very little about the Holy Spirit, and nothing about spiritual gifts and things like that, I mean, you know, I was just ignorant of those things look, you want to know something that's not, you can be ignorant but god isn't ignorant of those things <laughs> you know and if you love jesus you open your heart to him god's going to begin to work in your life and although much later in my life i came to understand the reality the power of the holy spirit and you know being filled with the spirit and the release of of, of gifts far beyond what i knew at that time but god was just you know he was moving me in his in his agenda for me you know through through this and and but, but again, I just I just have to stress this I'm going to get off it right now, but the, the gifts precede the office, okay? Because here's the great tragedy of the church and that is there are pastors uh, you know all over this country who are not called and not gifted. And they're in the church because they think it's a job. it's a vocation. And so you know and've and you know I've been in seminary with hundreds of these people over the years and they've gone to seminary because you know you know my parents thought that this you know i should go in the ministry or some pastor said well you know you know Johnny or Susie I think you'd be wonderful in the ministry you ought to go to seminary consider that as a vocation and they looked around and gosh the church looked pretty good to them you know the salaries aren't bad there are a lot of retirement benefits there's a pension plan and a medical program which is quite desirable and blah, blah blah and so you start your career in the church you know you start in a small church as a youth worker and you kind of go up the ladder and you get into a little larger church and then you have your own church and then you know and there's this whole kind of professional track set out before you and there are thousands upon thousands Thousands of these people in churches all over the country, uncalled and ungifted, and uh, you know, and, and they're doing it as a job. And I've I've talked to pastors, I you know, uh, uh, with some frequency, who've said to me things like, "Don, the only reason why I'm in the ministry is because of the pension fund. I've got to stay in through my years, you know, to get that retirement." And you think their church is being blessed because of this? You know, you walk into churches, nobody's getting saved, nobody's getting healed, nobody's getting edified, nothing's going on. You know, churches are dying all over the place. Why is it? That's not the biblical model for church life <laughs> or church growth, you know? So, so I just have to stress this, but I'm through stressing it now. The gift precedes the office, you know. So, but let me tell you why this is practical, okay? I'm enjoying teaching this more than I thought I would. Uh, you know, my voice you know, is, is, is still working for me, too. That, you know why this is important? Because one of the reasons why it's important is because what we need to be doing in the church, then, is looking around to see how God is gifting his people for ministry. And my job isn't, you know, I mean, sometimes it's to pray, you know, lay hands on people and pray for them and, and 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 pray that God will gift them. But my job is to see what God is doing, you know, not go around and project that into everybody's life and then try to recruit them to something. And there's a fine line there at times because sometimes we really need that affirmation. You know, we need somebody to say, you know, I needed that certainly in my earlier life, you know, somebody to say, you know, Don, boy, I, th- I really feel like God's, you know, gifting you to to teach the Bible or to speak His Word or what have you, and let me encourage you in that. Now I needed that encouragement, but it's one thing to, in a sense, see what God is doing and bless that and and encourage it and nurture it, and then to try to get somebody into something, you know. So, okay, I'm through with that. Now. So part I see one of the no, I'm not through. One of the adventures of my life now is to look around and see, you know, see what God's doing in people's lives. You know, I mean, really try to see that. Um, you know. So, some years ago now I, I learned how to how to pray for people for healing or to be you know uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and <clears throat> one of the first things that I learned I learned it from John Wimber but but John Wimber learned it from Francis McNutt and that is that when you pray in these ways for people keep your eyes open you know I mean I I mean i had been taught for 25 years or 30 years as a Christian let us pray right I mean, you always close your eyes when you pray I mean, most people do, right? I mean, isn't that the normal? Like you shutting the world out so you can focus on the Lord. So this was brand new learning for me. Keep your eye, well. Why do you keep your eyes open when you pray? So you can watch the person that you're praying for and see physically if there's some indication what God is doing in their life as you're praying for them. I was at Anaheim at the Vineyard Conference last week. There were almost 400 Korean pastors and their wives. Uh, and a huge contingent had come from Korea, and then some had come from Korean churches in the United States. But uh, they had these these headsets on; they were broadcasting a simultaneous translation for the Koreans. And they they sat together in, in a big block of people in the in the sanctuary. But uh, I spoke to the whole uh, you know to, to the whole conference on Wednesday night, and I said some things because I uh, I have a real heart for the Koreans and for the Korean church. And this I've known Korean missionaries, and and I. I mean, I I feel a very deep feeling about that church, and so I said some things, uh, you know, about the Korean church and the suffering that it had gone through, but the explosion of the gospel in Korea. Korea by by the end of this decade, probably will be the first Asian country to have a majority of Christians, with the exception of the Philippines. But a, you know, a, a, a you know a country that's been Buddhist you know, to have a majority of Christians in, in that's in South Korea, I and mean, that's. I mean the dynamic of that church is really incredible but but uh, anyway so <clears throat> uh- so I, you know, kind of blessed the Korean church from the platform. Well, what happened as a result of that was the Koreans were chasing me around for the rest of the week, and I just had Koreans all over me. And I got to tell you one thing about the Koreans, and I really respect this: when they want something, they go for it. They are not bashful. They, they, I mean, they're militant. You know, they're aggressive. They're assertive. You know, they're very goal-oriented. I mean, as a whole, you know, and um, you know that's a kind of a generalization, but it's but it's there's a lot of truth to that. So anyway, so I had the chance. What they wanted me to do was to pray for them. And I just had a chance to pray for all these Koreans all over the place, and I was just thoroughly enjoying doing that and ministering to them. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, you know, but it was really important to pray with my eyes open because, again, not only are the Koreans very militant and you know and aggressive and you know go after it with it, but they're also incredibly expressive as well. So if you just close your eyes, you might lose people, you know, uh, you have to watch what's going on. And I think part of that's the Holy Spirit, but part of that's just, you know, just the, the, the nature of these people. They're, they're just, and they are so excited about the Lord and they're so on fire for the Lord. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. Let me tell you something about the Korean mission. I'm kind of off the text, but <clears throat> the, the earliest missionaries that went to Korea, They established this as far as the church was concerned. They were severely persecuted, but they established this, that you could not join the church in Korea until you had personally led someone else to Christ. That was part of, you know, part of the deal before you could actually join the church. Well, what did that mean for the Korean church? It was just evangelistic to its core. Because everybody who was a you know, member of the church had, had the experience of, of winning someone, you know, probably in their family, in their Buddhist family, you know, in that first generation to the Lord. So that's part of just the dynamic of that church. It's, a, it's really wonderful. But, but anyway, uh, so what we, this, now I'll get back to the subject what we need to do is to have our eyes open to see what God is doing. You know, it's not, it's a lot more interesting to see what God is doing, whether we're praying for someone or just kind of looking at what the Lord's doing in our body or what He's. It's a lot more interesting to know what he's doing than what we're doing. What we're doing isn't that interesting overall, I'd say. Okay, now, here's the tension then. Gifts are to be received, but gifts are also to be sought. And so look, look at uh, uh, 1 Timothy 3.1. Here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer or a bishop... He desires a noble task. Now, now I've already said that these are gifts given by the Lord Jesus. You know, there's there's the gift of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Paul lays it out, and these are more. You might say, you know, and 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 elders, elders in the church are gifts from the Lord. I mean, it's his calling and his gifting, but that's his side to give. But it's our side also to seek. And that's kind of the tension or the paradox, isn't it? You know seek spiritual gifts you know so ask for them pray for them and i think we need to be in that position lord we need pastors we need teachers we need uh servants we need ministers you know we need these you know please you know put this bring this into our church and so so uh so uh, so what paul's encouraging uh uh, some to do within the church is to, is to set their heart on this ministry, the ministry of being a, an overseer or, or a bishop. And he says if he, if he uh, is seeking this, he, de- de- he desires a noble task. It's, it's a noble thing to be in this position. Now, again, I already point out in chapter 5 where Paul uses the word elder in verse 17. In the New Testament, these words are interchangeable. In other words, they're, they're synonyms. Uh, but, well, they're not really synonyms, but they complement each other. The word elder has to do with position, one who's older and therefore wiser and has authority in his, in his and, and there were elders in the synagogue. So that's the, in a sense, the position, but the function of the elder is to be an overseer. And again, behind that, part of what's behind that is the, is, is the picture of the shepherd looking over and taking care of his sheep. But this is more of an administrative word. So he's looking over the life of the church. Taking responsibility for it and watching what's going on, and again, uh, uh, and then, and, and, and then, caring for the church. So, so elders have uh, have this uh, responsibility to see over the life of the church, and uh, and, and, uh, and 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 Paul says this is a noble task. Okay, well, who's qualified for this then? What I mean, if we're saying, Lord, give us elders, uh, give us overseers in our church. Uh, what, What are the qualifications? Now Paul gives a bunch of them. Look at starting in verse two. Now the overseer must be above reproach. And by the way, I think that's the theme of the whole list. Okay. Above reproach. Okay. Um and, and now look at the list. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well, see that he is true obey him with proper respect. Um, if anyone doesn't know how to manage his family, how can he take care of the church? Not be a recent convert. Uh, he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He also must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and in the devil's trap. Okay, so here's a big list of qualifications. Now, now again what Paul's saying is that that these uh, overseers or bishops, uh, 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 the the word episkopos which we get uh, the English word bishop again in Greek uh, it means to look over. So a bishop is one who looks over, like the shepherd with his, his rod, uh, his staff. Uh, the bishop is looking over the, the church, keeping, keeping track of it, so to speak. Okay. Above reproach. Now, let's just, let's just take a glance at the list, okay? In marriage, he's to have one wife. Um, in Judaism in the first century, this is the way I understand this. In Judaism in the first century, you could be married to more than one wife as, the, as, as uh, the Muslims today can, can have polygamous marriages. But the New Testament establishes clearly that uh, 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 monogamy is God's standard for marriage, although you can have polygamy, examples of polygamy in the Old Testament. but Monogamy uh, is reestablished in the New Testament as God's standard. The two should become one flesh based upon creation. So an overseer must, must uh, not have many wives. So I don't think this is a reference to divorce and remarriage. It's a reference to polygamy, OK, over against the synagogue or Jewish synagogue. OK, so he's a, to be a, above reproach in his marriage. Secondly, in his manner, temperate, which means clear-headed. Now, what this, you know, what, what this really means is you know, not have a lot of alcohol running around in your bloodstream. I mean, that's the meaning of the word. So to be clear-headed. Uh, you drink too much, you can't uh, you know, take care of the church. You'll, the church will have to take care of you. Temperate, OK, self-controlled. And the word here again means thoughtful, Uh, but to be in control of of your thoughts, respectable. And and literally the word means orderly, So so to have an orderedness to your life. Okay, so in marriage, he's to be above reproach. In the manner in which he lives, he's to be above reproach. Okay, thirdly, in ministry, he's to be above reproach. Look, hospitable, what does that mean? That means opening your house to the church. And the basic structure of the church until the establishment in, under Constantine was that the church met in homes. There were house churches. And quite clearly, what was emerging here was that each house would have an overseer, a, a bishop, or an elder over that house. And so there were many elders, but each elder then was pastoring his own house. So there was this network of, uh, of house churches, so, that, so the elder uh, needs to be hospitable, OK? And then, of course, when he opens his house and welcomes the church into his home, he needs to be able to teach. So he needs to be, uh, 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 to, to teach the, uh, God's word. So he needs to be above reproach in ministry. Secondly, in motives, or, or, or I mean, fourthly, in motives. Marriage, man I got all M's, alliteration, I worked hard on this. Marriage, manner, ministry, motives. In motives, no drunkenness. In other words, you shouldn't be addicted to it. And By the word, drunkenness here, literally the Greek word means one who sits for a long time with his wine. <laughs> don't do it. Um, okay. Uh, not violent, but gentle, and namely kindly, not quarrelsome, not, you know, given to debate. It's hard to, not to be a fighter uh, and not a lover of money. Doesn't mean you can't have money, just don't love it. Paul say more about that in the sixth chapter of First Timothy. Okay. So his, in his, in his, In his uh, inner inner motivation, he needs to be above respect, okay? Then in management, he needs to be able to manage his family. In other words, he needs to be able to rule or oversee his household, take care of his household. And again, Paul says, look, if he can't take care of his household, how's he going to take care of the church? So one of the ways that you can find out, you know, is this person really qualified or not to peek into his home? And this is a really hard one today. You know, if his children are out of order, Paul says, then his house is out of order. But gosh, how do you deal with adolescence and rebellion and all those kinds of things today? This, this is—it's really hard. Grace, grace, grace is the answer, you know. Uh, again, Paul isn't—you know—like, you know, just laying down the law here. But he's talking about the quality of life, and I think all of us are in process on this. We now have stated elders in the Coast Vineyard, and we had to work through this together, you know. And we kept had to encourage each other that, well, yeah, this really is going on in your family. That's all right, you know. You, you know, you do, you, you do fit within the. the Qualifications that are here, but in managing his his household, okay, and then in maturity, not a recent convert, because Paul says if he's a recent convert, then pride can sneak in and waylay him, and uh, and so there needs to be a, a maturity in his life, and then finally, in in the mundane things of this world, he needs to have a good reputation. So basically, within the church, he needs to be uh, above, above reproach in in, in his. Uh, in his motives, in the way that he lives, and in and, and his family life, and and, and, uh, in, and in his marriage and what have you. But he also needs to have a respect from the world, have a good reputation so that he won't fall into the devil's trap. Now, clearly what Paul's doing here is not just giving kind of a, uh, you know, as I say, a personnel checklist, but he's clearly con- combating those elders that are destroying them at least parts of the church in, in in ephesus look at chapter six verses three through five and we'll just uh, give a sense of this uh, this, this, this is the larger context for this uh, teaching on, on, on uh, elders or, or bishops in, in chapter 3. Paul says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the solid instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understanding nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction. You notice how that's just the opposite? of of the kind of, uh, of of godly leader that that uh, you know paul is is describing in chapter three so this is quarrelsome contentious uh, and what have you look uh, constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain you see so as paul is describing the kind of leadership that the church needs to have again he's contrasting that with the corruption of that leadership that is affecting the church in Ephesus. So I think there's this, you might say, polemical note, a corrective note, as well as just a kind of a directive note, as Paul uh, calls forth these qualifications. Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me just move really quickly through deacons here, um, because it's, it's much the same. ...suing dishonest gain. They must uh, keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They uh, must first be tested, and if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. So, uh, once again, what Paul basically talks about here, analogous to the elders, is their manner of life. They're they're to be respected. Uh, uh, They are to be sincere, uh, not not to be double-tongued or or gossipers. Uh, They're they're not to be addicted to wine, and they're not to be uh, out for the money, dishonest gain. And they're to hold the gospel, these uh, truths of the gospel, deeply with a clear conscience. And so, uh, so again, that what Paul's talking about here is against the kind of the, you might say, the, the character of, of the deacons. In verse 11, he says, "...the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything." Now, uh, in Greek, the word deacon is, is a masculine word. And because of that, when Paul introduces wives here, uh, the translators either just uh, render this as kind of the character of the wives of the deacons, or the other possibility is that Paul here is speaking of women who are also uh, um, uh, serving in, in, in the deacon, deacon function within the church. And, uh, and the translators take different positions on this. That's why it's footnoted in the NIV. Let me just say one make one comment about this. From, uh, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul commends Phoebe... Uh, to, uh, uh, to the Romans and she's uh, bearing the letter to the Romans and he wor- uses the word deacon in referring to Phoebe in Romans 16.1. Uh, and he uses the masculine, although the, the, the name Phoebe is feminine, but there's no masculine form. So he says, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in uh, Sancria. But the word servant here is the word deacon. It's the same word which is rendered deacon elsewhere. And so the, in the King James version, it says deaconess. They make it into a feminine form but it's not it's a masculine form so again uh it may well be and, and in some church traditions like in the lutheran church um they will have an order of deaconesses as well as an order of deacons uh based on 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 this text again in verse 12 paul picks up on a deacon must be the husband of but one wife uh, against polygamy must manage his household well Again, you saw that with elders, those who have served well will gain an excellent standing, and that's probably within the context of the church. The church will respect them and honor them and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus, and, and the Lord will bless them as well. So here we have, <clears throat> again, the full ministry of, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ proclaiming the word of God and serving human need is now given, you might say, a more uh, structured um uh, status within the early church in the creation of these offices but it's those who are gifted for them that then that are to fill them okay and this isn't by popular vote this is by the work of the Holy Spirit um, okay let's bring this to a close verse 14 although I hope to come to you soon I am writing these instructions so that I if I'm delayed you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household okay so here again Paul knows he is delayed, so he's writing this and he's sending this list of, of, uh, of, of uh, you know, uh, requirements for, for bishops or elders and deacons so that, so that you'll know how to conduct themselves in God's household against those who are corrupting the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, so Paul's purpose here in, in giving this list is again to, first of all, to instruct Timothy and the Ephesians through them Uh, So that he can then correct and direct the leadership of the church and build up the church Which he describes here and look at what he says about the church. It's God's household. Namely. It's a family of faith It's an assembly and the word church in Greek literally means those who are called together as a gathering and Then the church is the bearer of God's truth in this world Which is the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the church truth is founded upon the church which is founded upon Jesus Christ, and but it's also the pillar that upholds truth. And that's what we are to be in this world. In the in the midst of all the lies and deceptions in this world, we are to be God's people who've been called together as his family, who shine the light of truth into the darkness of this world. And the truth is to be upheld by the church over against all those who would corrupt it both within and without. Well, what is that truth? Look at Paul as he, as he brings the gospel once again in verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. So this is the truth. In other words, the center of the truth lies in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He appeared in a body. Here's one truth that we uphold, the incarnation. That God united himself to our humanity that Jesus Christ is the God-man. Uh, he is fully human and fully divine. He appeared in a body. He wasn't a phantom, he wasn't a spirit. Uh, he, he, the eternal son of God took on human flesh and entered into our history. So this is a part of the mystery of godliness. He was vindicated by the spirit. So we not only proclaim his incarnation, but also his triumph. And he was vindicated by the spirit because it was the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says this in Romans 8, he was seen by angels. And so God himself sent his angelic messengers as witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Go back to the Gospels. You'll see the angels appearing in the garden. Uh, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. The angels who were, uh, were uh, 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 witnesses to his resurrection witness his resurrection to us. So there's this uh, divine angelic affirmation of Jesus', uh, of Jesus uh, uh, resurrection and his appearances. And then fourthly his purpose. He was preached among the nations. So this one who has incarnated himself and been and, and been and, and, and who in human flesh, who has been raised from the dead and and, uh, and seen by angels, has now been proclaimed among the nations. So this one is for the nations, for the for the for the whole world, for all the Gentiles, and he is being proclaimed among the nations. And let me tell you, it's truer now than when Paul wrote this. This, I just got a, a, another kind of a, a major uh, missions report in the mail today, and I was looking through it, many pages of statistics as to what is going on in terms of world evangelism. This decade is, is is the decade of the most intense world evangelism in the history of the church. More people are hearing the gospel in every segment of the church. This is true in the Roman Catholic Church. It's true, maybe the Orthodox Church would be the exception, the the kind of greek and russian orthodox but 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 probably there's some evangelism there going on as well but certainly in the roman catholic church and the protestant church this has been proclaimed as the great decade of evangelism as we move to the year uh, 2000 he's been preached among the nations was believed on in the world so not only is he proclaimed but he's also been believed on and there's this great host in heaven triumphant and on earth militant who believe in the name of the lord jesus christ and taken up into glory and he is now glorified before the Father. This is the mystery of, of, of the gospel, you see. This is, this is the truth, uh, uh, which is the foundation for the church and the pillar uh, that, that the church is founded upon and that the church upholds uh, this truth, uh, which brings, uh, brings us just to focus once again upon Jesus Christ. And it's all for his glory. He appeared, he's vindicated, seen, preached, believed, and taken up. He is the one whom we proclaim. and and whom we serve. So with that ringing note, Paul brings chapter three to an end and let's stand and we'll go out. I'm sorry I went a little late tonight.